0: Hello, and welcome back to the Self Healer Soundboard. This episode, we are jumping back into our workbook episodes for how to meet yourself. We are currently finishing up section three of the workbook, specifically on page 157 Meet Your Emotional Addictions.
1: So, to get started, I think it'd be helpful, as always, to define what we mean when we say emotional addiction and Again, as always, really simply, an emotional addiction is the unconscious drive of our subconscious mind toward familiar emotional states. And if you tuned into, I think it was last episode or the episode entitled Meet Your Emotions, we explored the fact that emotions map onto physiology, to energy in our body, to shifts in neurotransmitters or different hormones. Some of you might be familiar with the stress hormones, cortisol, and adrenaline. And really simply, as we often describe, our subconscious mind has quite literally imprinted all of our life's experiences, in particular, our early experiences. So those shifts in neurotransmitters and hormones that were most consistently present in our childhood in many ways, become our familiar home. It's what our mind and body have grown used to. And if you've heard us speak about the subconscious mind in the past, we again acknowledge that our subconscious loves that habitual familiarity because it gets to predict and anticipate exactly what happens next. Of course, based on what had happened in those early past experiences. And when we don't have that sense of familiar stress hormones or whatever other neurotransmitter it might be that is your particular familiar home, we feel different. We feel uncomfortable, and we feel then driven, compelled by that subconscious part of our mind to return to that familiarity, again, giving us that false sense of control and that false sense of security.
0: While the mind and the body are connected and in constant communication with one another, When talking about the concept of emotional addiction and here in this conversation, we're really revolving around and honoring the body's experience. So the embodied physiological experience that happens within when we are in an emotional addiction or an emotional addiction cycle. So the subconscious mind that you're just referencing, that 90% of the iceberg that is submerged beneath the water, you could almost imagine that as the body, the experiences that are occurring in our childhood are getting imprinted on the body, almost like a package going along a conveyor belt that's getting a stamp stamped on it. The experience stamps a physiological imprint into our actual body, our activation, our cells, and how we respond. So when referencing that submerged part of the iceberg, That's the reactivity or the response that is happening within our body, even if it's outside of our conscious awareness. We might not be aware or know that we are getting activated by something or going to an emotional overwhelm or a threat response to something, but our body does. Almost as if our body is there before us. The body has so much wisdom in it, it already knows. It's responding to a perceived threat in its environment that does come from an actual experience from our earliest environments. Even if we haven't become aware of noticing it yet, that's the work that we're actually doing here is beginning to identify those activators so that we can connect our mind and thoughts in real time to the response that's already happening, that activation that's already happening physiologically within our physical self.
1: There's such an important emphasis I want to put here on outside of our conscious awareness, like you're beautifully describing. Because again, as we've often described in the past, it's our nervous system, right? Through the process of neuroception, always on alert, always scanning our environment. And ultimately, the two words that popped into my mind when I was listening to you, Jenna, were we are always more often than not in a state of reacting to and recreating in many ways our past experience or our past earliest environments, and again, oftentimes that two-step process of reacting to and recreating is happening outside of our awareness, driven by our nervous system, which again is housed in our body with all of the physiology attached. Which is why, when I briefly describe the different hormones, I mentioned stress hormones because, in particular, very many of us—and I know myself included—become familiar with certain levels of spikes in cortisol or spikes in adrenaline, the two primary neurotransmitters associated with the stress response itself. So again, just popped into mind. I think those are two helpful ways to think about it. Um, Until we, of course, become aware of these emotional addiction cycles, many of us are walking around outside of our even conscious awareness, reacting to and recreating our earliest environments, even if those environments carried pain, carried trauma, and carried the wounding that many of us want to avoid or not recreate into our adulthood. And most of us have
0: real life examples of our own to relate to that. We wonder, why is this happening again? The same pattern over and over, or maybe we're a few decades into our life wondering, how is this still happening this way? Every relationship I get into, it's the same thing. Every job, it's the same thing. I continue to sabotage. Whatever the pattern is or the reactivity, for most of us, it is in a consistent cycle. So the work in healing is really just becoming aware of that cycle and then practicing new thoughts, new behaviors that leads into a healing or a transformation and emerging of that authentic self. But before we even go Mm -hmm. into the latter end of it, most of you, if not all of you who are listening to this and ourselves included, have already lived this experience. So everything that you're hearing shared isn't not new literature out there that you know you're just learning and embodying. it's something you've already been embodying and experiencing. and now we're just giving it some language to help your mind break it down and articulate it so that we have a, a bit of some some traction, really something to grapple with so that we can
1: understand. And I think it would be helpful maybe for us now to break down the actual cycle of emotional addiction that for many of us is happening outside of our awareness. And of course, for those of you following along in our workbook, um, this is right from page 158. And essentially, so we have a threat-based nervous system response. Again, that's our neuroception. That's the fact that we don't have to think about it. We are always on alert. We are always scanning our environment to make sure that we're safe, to make sure that we have the possibility of having our needs met, which will continue to create that safe, secure experience that we need. So that is kind of step one, if you will, in this cycle. And we could think about the cycle like a circle, right? It's kind of feeding in. There's no beginning and no end. It quite literally continues around and around. So once we have that threat-based nervous system activation, right, we don't get to choose that. Our body is doing that anyway. If and when, right, we see or perceive something similar to our past experiences that elicits a cause for concern. We feel threatened. We feel unsafe. We perceive the possibility, right, of not having our needs met or of an active violation. Now, the second step that happens, again, outside of our awareness, is we're shifted into a state of emotional reactivity, right? We become overwhelmed. We become numb. We become shut down. We have emotions, and we start to, in, our, in terms of our physiology, map that experience onto our body. Now, something is happening inside of us that's creating a stressful experience, if not an emotionally overwhelming experience, That then continues us on, again, often outside of our awareness. We might not even have the language to say what's happening internally, though the next step on this train will be we'll deal with it in some way. We will attempt to self-regulate, usually, again, through the habitual ways that we learned in childhood. We'll explode out with our emotions. We'll withdraw inward with our emotions. We'll use substances or social media to numb or to distract ourselves, And of course, there's many different things that many of us have learned to habitually do, but really this step now is our body's attempt at dealing with it. How am I going to deal with this shift in my physiology? Again, now we're not relying on maybe the things that we've learned in a book or in this beautiful podcast, all of the new ways in this moment where really our subconscious mind is relying On those habitual ways, the ways that that early environment, sometimes for some of us, the only ways that we could cope in that time. So, outside of our awareness, we're scanning, we feel threatened, right? Our body shifts into activation, something actually happens in our body. And now we revert to those old habitual ways. We've learned to deal with it. And then the final step, which usually inevitably happens next, is. The way we've habitually reacted doesn't necessarily serve us. It maybe doesn't allow us to have that need that was going unmet to be met. It maybe doesn't actually allow us to create safety or connection or whatever it is that we might need to regulate in that moment. So usually this whole process is then followed up by some more feelings, by acts of self betrayal, by feelings of shame that then continue, as I described, that circle to continue that revolution, right? If I'm feeling now shameful, if I'm enacting self-betrayal, if I need connection, but I've shut myself down from it, chances are my response is going to be activated again. That nervous system is still now perceiving the impact of that habitual choice I made. And if I haven't returned to safety, if I haven't returned to security. If I didn't allow myself to meet that unmet need, then I'm just tipping that next domino of that threat based nervous system activation all over again, again, continuing that next revolution of the circle. And a big reason why we call it the cycle of emotional addiction, because we can't step out of it. We're locked in it, seeking a familiarity, relying on habitual ways that don't actually meet the deeper level need that we're having. And so the cycle continues, some of us for decades, some of us for a lifetime. We're quite literally locked
0: in it. All of this revolving around our actual nervous system, which is what resides within us. And the state of it is what allows me to express myself in the world. How I express myself in the world is a direct result of the state of my nervous system and vice versa, because this is a continuous communication loop. So when we're talking about that stress overwhelm here, it's not all of the stressful thoughts and the overwhelm and the cycle of the constant exhausting chatter in our minds, that's also there and it is absolutely connected to the stress response. So we're talking about the stress response of our nervous system, those stress chemical spikes in our nervous system. And then that involuntary response to self-regulate, I just want to highlight here because we talk about self-regulation and learning self-regulating tools. So in this context, self-regulate is in the habitual ways we have learned to self-regulate, not the self-regulation of, you know, cold therapy, or a breath work, or getting sunshine, eating nutritious foods, the regulating our nervous system. That's the ladder of how to create that nervous system safety. We are talking here about the initial conditioned and primitive Automatic self regulation responses, which in an emotional addiction cycle is either, you know, maybe icing your partner in an argument and shutting them out and going into a shutdown or being very volatile and reactionary and yelling. We're looking here at where we are now, not necessarily where we want to be or what the goal is, which also is a great moment to just have this little footnote again that. Even in these conversations, while you're exploring, while you're listening and sharing your presence here, this in real time is an opportunity to reparent. This is in real time an opportunity for you to practice just holding space for the critiquing, for the shame, for all of the thoughts that will come with the stress and even the exploration of these conversations. We get to reparent ourselves and become that loving, nurturing wise inner parent or voice that many of us never had while we are in these conversations. And to begin that, it might just be by simply allowing yourself to listen. Whatever chatter and exhaustion comes into your mind, however your body is, Physically responding, just allowing it to be, and allowing yourself
1: to observe yourself. I think it may be helpful to offer a personal example here. Some of you might have heard me speak about my own emotional addiction before, though it has come to my conscious awareness that I very much have an emotional addiction to fear in particular or or stress, that stress based nervous system response, again, which happens when we perceive a threat to safety. For me, it tracks all the way back to my childhood, where while my physical needs were quite consistently met, my emotional needs weren't. And because we do need that safe nervous system to co-regulate with in childhood, when we're having these emotional, energetic, hormonal, neurotransmitter-based experiences in our body, we need another physical, safe, grounded human to create that safety for us, to tell our bodies that there is no reason to be threatened because our needs are met because we're being soothed by a parent. So again, when I was having quite consistently any emotional experience in my early childhood, because again, of no ill intent of my mom in particular, based on her own past experience with her own caregivers and her own inability to deal with her own emotions, she left me largely alone. So My fear based response really came from when emotions happened, right? There was a threat to my safety, my emotional safety, my ability to get that grounded sense of safety and security or soothing. So, again, before I even had language for all of this, I lived this cycle. And what it looked like for me is I mean, I've described myself as a self proclaimed hippie at heart. If you would have asked me my whole life, all I really want is peace and freedom. I want to be able to do as I choose or as I would like to do. Course, I didn't live in these habits and I wanted a sense of peace. I just wanted an easeful life, though, because in my body, right, this threat-based response was so strong, was so consistent. My body memorized, in a sense, stress, different levels of cortisol spikes, different levels of adrenaline. It memorized my nervous system not being in that calm grounded state of our ventral vagal response. It memorized being in a sympathetic response to overwhelming emotions, which were any emotion. So in absence of, you know, having any reason, if you will, to be stressed, I was home alone. It was a Sunday. I didn't have endless things to do. I would feel that discomfort of that unfamiliarity, right? Because I wasn't getting those spikes that I was used to. So I wouldn't feel like myself. And before long, what I would do is I would recreate exactly that same stressful experience. I'd find a reason in my external environment. I'd find a reason in my interpersonal environment if I had a partner around me to recreate that same spike in stress. And then how this really maps onto my body, not only through the physiology of cortisol and the physiology of adrenaline, it actually began over time, as I think we talked about in the emotional, in the Meet Your Emotions episode again, it started to map onto my actual posture of my body, right, to this tension around my psoas muscle in particular, which is really just the main muscles that kind of envelop or hug our spine and all of our major organs. When we're having fear-based response, when we're feeling threatened, when we're feeling unsafe, our body begins to brace itself quite literally for impact, right, for the next shoe to drop. And for me, that tension began to actually, I mean, I was told um, somewhere in my 20s that I had a slight um, degree of scoliosis, even in my spine from it really, all of the impact of all of this muscular tension. Of course, I felt it when I would try to stretch or turn um, my, my spine itself or just kind of turn to the side. I would feel all of this tension. And over time, it actually began to be reflected in my posture. Now I'm describing all of this to say, in my body was the reason why I couldn't have that peaceful moment of ease, of freedom, because even in those moments in absence of stress, my body's posture was telling my mind that there's a threat present, Nicole. You can't relax. You can't be at peace. You can't do what you want right now. What you need to do is the habitual thing you always do to create safety in myself.
0: I'm so glad that you referenced this to last episode too, because I mentioned in that one, that's the lines between the eyes. If you listen to this episode, you'll understand what we're talking about. And if not really quickly, I mentioned that, you know, that scowl, how your face will get stuck (laughs) in the way that it is throughout your life. And my mother has this line, like a permanent indent in between her eyes. And I say that objectively because I also have the same one. And I mentioned in that episode how it's like as if you're scowling. You can imagine if you furrow your brow and scowl your face, you kind of have this crease in the middle. And I thought about it after that episode and realized that so much of that too was not necessarily scowling from anger, but from constant worry, a constant fear. So for you, this Physical response of your body and that protection and that fear, you know, looking even to a doctor as potential scoliosis, for some, it might be that same emotional response and activation that then your face does go into a a worry. And if you're constantly in an emotional addiction cycle and your body is constantly responding to that emotional addiction cycle, which it is, then over time, the muscles in your body, your structure, your physiology, your fascia is going to get stuck in the position that it resides in. And most of this is what's happening subconsciously. Our mind is subconsciously seeking to create situations that align with our body's stress response. So that stress response that became so familiar for you, those spikes of cortisol or For me, it was an environment of chaos and dysfunction that was cruising altitude for me. That was familiar. That was my definition of ease, was actually the chaotic spikes. So that's the submerged part of that iceberg. My mind is then going to seek that as ease. It's going to continue seeking to create Chaos, dysfunction, opportunities for cortisol spike, because that's aligning with this constant drip of stress response that's already happening within my physical being.
1: And to continue, then the tape forward again, using my example in terms of my habitual ways to self regulate, right? So, in that moment where I'm feeling fearful, where there's a threat to my usually emotional safety, right? Now, in terms of mind, The way I usually habitually cope with a lack of emotional safety gets activated, which for me wasn't turning toward connection, closeness, comfort, an opportunity to self-regulate with someone else because I didn't have that in my childhood. In those moments, what I would do, you know, outside of my conscious awareness, my point of reaction was not to turn toward what I needed to get that safety and security, was actually to do one of two things. Either, as I say, kind of put my hand up with daggers on my palm and demand someone come close, be mean to them, not create an environment where it's actually likely that someone wants to come close to comfort me, or I leave the room entirely. Physically, I quite... Take leave. I'm not present anymore. I lock myself in the bedroom, upset that I'm not getting that comfort that I need, or I emotionally leave. I completely shut down. I pull one of those very typical, what's wrong? Nothing. And I'm a million miles away, and I don't let anyone actually meet me and create that safety, which again continues my cycle because now I'm still not having my need met. What I need is emotional connection. I need comfort. I need that safety. I need that security. Yet what I'm habitually doing is not that at all. And just to use a a current day example, actually, as of this morning to really highlight the ever going journey of this, right? I've come to this awareness. And again, we're not going to talk about healing though. In a lot of ways I've learned how to create safety, not rely on those habitual ways to actually turn toward comfort though. These emotional addictions run deep and really quickly, I'll share what's actively going on. Um, so very many of you know that we have a little gang of kittens uh, that were the byproduct of two cats that live in our backyard that we have been feeding more or less since we moved in. So long story short, these cats come very regularly. We feed them very regularly. We now have their, their Regularly kittens. means
0: every day, <laughs> near morning daily, and evening. Near
1: daily, right? So so we have their kittens. So obviously, we're very bonded to these cats. And long story short, one of the cats in particular, the mom cat, as we call her, we have not seen her for several days so because again my my initial habitual reaction my comfort zone is worry right i don't actually know what's happening she could be chilling she could be have taken been taken in by another family on the block who knows what happened i don't have those facts yet my habitual response is still there i'm not going into that you know safety and security that things are okay immediately my body begins to tense i begin to brace this morning you and i were sitting out back and i was becoming actively overwhelmed by my emotions and i caught myself beginning to shut down the whole day ahead of me recording this podcast everything began to feel really big really overwhelming and when i'm shut down i'm closing myself off from connection and it's not it's not you know a, a coincidence i'm using this example that I went to worry, that my body went to worry. Nothing objectively, we don't have the objective facts of what's happening. And someone listening, your body might not habitually go to worry in that moment. It might be a different emotion, right? It might be anger, it might be a sadness. But for me, because that's my point of familiar safety, that is where my body goes. That then is where my mind goes. And if I'm not conscious, I might habitually go back to, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling worried that this cat I've grown bonded to might have had something happen to her in that in that moment I would love comfort right I would love to have my partner stand next to me and just you know, be with me in my sadness. And if I'm not careful, I might go right back, back down that unconscious path of not allowing that to happen. Again, further keeping myself emotionally unsafe because now I'm having a big emotion without anyone next to me. And before long, I might continue that old emotional addiction cycle. So I just wanted to give that as a lived example, not only of my historical um, kind of really stuckness in the cycle, but also to illustrate it doesn't go away overnight. I mean, as of this morning, I still was able to be consciously aware of those old tendencies that not only lived in my body, I felt my body physiologically going into fear. I saw in my mind's eye that immediate stamp of worry, something must have happened. And I almost saw myself on the brink of shutting down in reaction to that. For those of you
0: who Go to the worst case scenario or maybe have a loved one that's jumping to that worst case scenario. This is a great descriptor of what's actually happening. The mental thought of the worst case scenario is responding to the physiological stress response, the overwhelm and the threat that's happening within our bodies. And what you're describing as the, you know, put your palm up with daggers (laughs) on it, but inside really you're you're needing and wanting that connection. I immediately thought of the prickly pear. I almost said that out loud. Oh, it's you're being a prickly pear. And for those of you who (laughs) are unfamiliar with prickly pears, I was until moving to Arizona and we have them in our backyard. It's a beautiful cactus that also grows flowers. And This cactus is extremely spiky, not something you want to be really touching or engaging with. However, it's also very sweet inside. You can eat it. You can eat the flowers. We have prickly pear tea here. There's prickly pear candy. It has a sweetness to it internally. However, on the outside, (laughs) it's armed for protection. It's an actual cactus with, you know, Three, four, five inch thorns coming out of it. So it's a little nature Mm -hmm. example or imagery of what you might. Notice you doing yourself to other people around you, or maybe you have a partner that, and this is a great space to, you're zooming your awareness out of yourself. As you're having more awareness of yourself, you're also gaining such wisdom and awareness of the behaviors and interactions of your loved ones and those around you. And maybe beginning to create separation and space from what we think is just so them, they're being so mean to me, they just want connection, but they don't let it in and now really expanding to, oh, this is what's happening. There is a very primal biological response that's happening externally to the internal stress overwhelm that's happening internally. And this morning when we were sitting out there talking about, well, really before we were talking about this cat, we went in and out of talking about it, which really was ebbing through tears and some hugs and just some silence that, you know, it could be. Yes, my brain might have gone in some ways to a worst case scenario. My stomach immediately feels sick, wondering why. And I get some of you might be like, oh my gosh, this backyard cat, (laughs) you guys are so worked up over this, but we're really pulling such a I mean, you could think it's a macro example or a micro example. I don't know where backyard cats (laughs) land for you. Though it's a real life experience of, yeah, you wonder, here's this being that over time, over a couple of years, especially an animal, you do get attuned to and then attachment comes in. There is some sort of attachment bonding or even attachment wounding there that when a week goes by, and we haven't seen this beloved animal who is the mother of our four little baby kittens that we have, it is worrisome. For me, it instantly had a pit in my stomach. And I am very connected to my body and very led by the wisdom of my body. Before I had conscious awareness or thought of it, my body was the one thing I had in my childhood to almost protect myself. I did rely on my body's senses. I became very astute, very intuitive, very aware, very hyper vigilant of my surroundings. So when I got this pit in my stomach, of a, a noise in particular I heard last week in the backyard that concerned me, my brain immediately went to, where is this mom cat? What's happening? And then lo and behold, a week goes by, we haven't seen her. And there's no proof or evidence that this noise that caused a physical response in my gut to be connected to this cat not being here. However, based on the stamp and the imprint that I have from my childhood, it did go into that response. And then the thoughts started pouring in to the physical reaction that there was some sort of perceived threat, not necessarily to me, but to something that I am identifying as being attached to.
1: And of course, you and I are giving very similar um, type of examples of you know an emotional addiction around fear or worry is you know a byproduct of fear, the physiological experience of fear. So again, this could some of you listening, it might it not might not be fear; it might be sadness right? That is kind of your familiar physiology. And then that becomes the thoughts that are running through your head are very kind of thematically based in sadness. Similarly, anger, right? We feel sad when we perceive a loss. We feel angry when we perceive a violation or when our need is actively being withheld from us. We get mad. So some of us might not in this moment, absence of objective information, might not be reacting from fear or worry, might be anger, Right. Your body might tense up. You might find yourself like you were sharing earlier, Jenna, on the point of eruption. You might even be screaming and yelling because the absence of, again, just continuing with our cat example, even though I know it doesn't fit exactly perfectly. Right. This cat not coming back right to you might be a loss. And then we shift into that sadness based familiar response or, again, Anger, right? The the meaning you make might be more angry based, right? Your physiology might escalate. You get into that fight based response, right? You might become angry that the need for this backyard cat. Again, this example doesn't actually work, but it might be anger. I just want to offer the possibility, right, that it might not be fear that many of you listening are emotionally addicted to. It might be one of the other core emotional experiences. Again, for more information on the whole world of meeting our emotions, check out the meet your emotion exercise. But I did want to insert here, right, that it's not always just fear. It might be anger. It might be sadness. It might be a different emotion that you've become used to, your body locked in that response, feeding those messages to your mind. The mind feeding the messages right down to your body, and then you reacting the same way you did in childhood when loss happened. You reacting the same way you did in childhood when you were being violated or when your needs weren't being met, which often right, isn't asserting ourselves, isn't creating a boundary, is an old habitual way that didn't actually put up that boundary that you needed for that safety, that didn't actually meet that need, that didn't actually allow you comfort when you're experiencing that loss. While we're using
0: fear and anger and mentioning, you know, some different emotions, it's not necessarily that you're going to be just in one emotion. It could be them all swirled together. I know for me, a fear or a sadness is somewhere connected to or swirling around with anger, maybe anger that something is the way it is. You know, when my brother Jake died, Last year the year before, there's deep sadness and grief there. And in that deep sadness and grief was also so much suppressed and buried anger that had not yet been tapped into. And that... Sadness and that grieving actually became an access point for some of that anger to erupt. Not because it was brand new and suddenly zooming in, but because it was so embedded in my physiology in my actual nervous system that the experience of other core emotions then ignited and allowed the other ones to all sort of rumble. And it kind of becomes an emotion party where suddenly your head's spinning. You don't really know how you're feeling. You just know that you're feeling. You're feeling everything. And for some of us, That is what happens in these emotional addiction cycles. That's our only access to feeling anything at all. It's an overwhelm, an absolute intensity, maybe a shutdown or a complete volatile reactivity so that we can actually feel. We're feeling all of it at once or we are cutting it off entirely and not feeling it at all. The beautiful thing about our body, well, one of the many beautiful things about our body is that all of the information is already there. All of the wisdom is there. All of the response is there. All the experience, all of our past, even if you don't remember it, no worries. It's there. It's impacted in your body. So even if you don't have the clarity or the articulation of what those emotional experiences are that you're having in an emotional addiction, or you don't know what your unique or habitual emotional addiction cycles are, it makes no difference because we are all starting at a baseline of sheer observation of our actual response, our habitual response. So when we are willing, the first step is always being willing, consciously willing Followed by action. Here it's being willing to observe ourselves, being willing to begin identifying the things and experiences that cause inactivation. What does ignite me? Now we'll know inactivation Mm -hmm. could be that shutdown, that icing. Maybe you get stone cold, you don't speak to someone, or you want to move to an island. Or you are being, you know, very volatile or yelling or shaming or blaming or externalizing. Whatever the response is, it's a behavior. It's a learned conditioned behavior to some perceived threat or unmet need. So all we have to do is be willing and choose to observe ourselves. This again, I refer to refer to my own self as a science experiment. My entire life I have viewed as one giant science experiment. And I'm the variable that I'm observing in all of these different environments and situations. That's where all of my feedback and all of that wisdom is coming from. And it's the same for every other human being. So I'm not trying to degrade the human experience or negate it when I talk about ourselves as science experiments. However, a science experiment is objective observation and awareness of all of the variables at play without the ego without the chatter with all without all of that thought it's just objective so we're looking at ourselves and in this case our bodies and our habitual responses in the very same
1: way I have to say, I had a bit of a giggle when you talked about um, wanting to run away because that is exactly, I think what I stated to you in the bathroom. Um, Not only do we have this podcast to film, I'm in the middle of one of the last stages of edits for my new book that's coming out in the fall. And I actually professed exactly that. in a still state of emotional overwhelm, right? Worried about the possibility that there's something might be wrong or had happened. I said exactly that. I said, oh my gosh, I have all this to do today. And all I want to do is run away. And I've spoken this um, before I began, you know, to come to this awareness and to begin my healing journey per se several years ago. Now, I mean, that was a frequently revisited thought. I would speak to Lolly quite often, this fantasy of just leaving everything. And again, there was so much wisdom in even my desire, my statement that I did speak aloud to Jenna this morning, oh gosh, I just want to run away. There was so much wisdom in that because what that symbolized was that old habitual way I deal with emotional overwhelm, lacking of support. I shut down. I left on my spaceship. I engaged in fantasies of not being here in the overwhelming situation itself. Though, of course, not creating the safety that I need it would have continued that emotional overwhelm. Like John Kabat-Zinn so beautifully said, wherever you go, there you are. I would have <laughs> went to this right ideal island. Still I would there. have gone away. I would have canceled my day today. And if I didn't do anything different other than those habitual ways I dealt with, you know, emotionally being overwhelmed or scared or fearful, chances are I would have been on an island just as overwhelmed, creating another reason why that's not the environment for me, seeking again something from outside. When in reality, we need to create that peace and safety. We need to heal these emotional addiction cycles through these daily choices. So again, just using that example, it made me giggle because I say exactly that. And that's so emblematic or symbolic or reflective of my way I've dealt with it. I've left when things got emotionally overwhelming because I didn't have the ability to create the safety and security in my body, in my relationships, in my childhood. Such a
0: great example of that externalization where we think (laughs) if we go over here, everything will change. Or for anyone who did grow up in financial scarcity or poverty like myself, there is an absolute mindset Mm -hmm. that when you get money or when you get financial abundance, when you are no longer in poverty or broke, then suddenly everything works out. It's that one thing that's so out of reach, at least in the case of poverty, it's one of the main core things that's so out of reach. And you just think continuously, well, that's the magic fix. That's the big lack that I don't have money and finances that makes the world spin. If I just had that, I'd be happy. A lot of celebrities or famous people are People who have great financial wealth, who also came from poverty or low-income backgrounds or a lot of adversity, will share that same experience that you think, oh, well, when the fame comes, when the money comes, suddenly everything will be different. As this beautiful quote speaks, wherever you go, there you are. It's the same internal experience. Gino Diaz has a beautiful quote in, I forget which book, uh, but a friend of mine gave it to me gave me a journal um, about a decade ago. I just saw a memory pop up of this on a timeline on some social media app. And she gave me this beautiful journal. And inside of the journal was a quote from one of his books that says, "Um, you cannot run away, not ever. The only way out is in. And it it gives me such an emotional, a physiological response, I should say. I can feel my throat getting choked up even when I say that because of the sheer reality of it. The only reality that I'm actually ever in is the reality that I'm experiencing through the state of my nervous system, it's all being filtered through my actual physiological experience, because how my nervous system is responding and feeling and experiencing life is then what's sending messages to my mind and so forth. It's this constant communication in a cycle back and forth. So we're quite literally looking within here at the embodied habitual response, So to help you explore and identify your own responses or activators, we have a chart on page 159 of the workbook, How to Meet Yourself. And again, if you don't have a physical copy of this workbook, we're reading this this particular chart and pulling right from the page. So this is a great spot, too, if you want to pause and write these things down or revisit. We're doing this intentionally so that you can also have the practices and context right from the pages of the workbook. And I do want to acknowledge in How to Meet Yourself, If you do have this. We use the word trigger consistently, and this chart is actually called Identify Your Triggers. And I'm acknowledging this because we understand that the word trigger is very activating for people, it, for lack of better example here, it is triggering in itself. And that is something really to acknowledge and that we want to honor and be mindful of. And it's an an easy sub for activator. Triggers are activators. It is some sort of emotional and physiological activating response. So we are going to be using the word activator here in place of what you will see in print of the word trigger. So this list of identifying your activators, we are breaking down into five different categories to help your mind kind of break it up in chunks so that you can grapple and understand this. Remember, as you're listening, I know for myself personally, and if I relate this way, I know many others do, when I'm hearing new information or new language or even hearing someone say, we broke it down into five categories so you can better understand it, I immediately witness my body go into a state of emotional activation and overwhelm and immediate fear that I'm not going to absorb it all. I'm not going to retain it all. I'm going to miss it. I'm not going to be doing it right. So, if you do identify with that, I would acknowledge yourself right now for even acknowledging and witnessing that you're identifying with that. That's huge. And if you don't identify with that, same thing incredible space to acknowledge and honor the fact that, oh, you just learned something else about yourself. This is more of that golden nugget wisdom. It's all feedback and awareness of yourself. The goal here is to be immersed in the inquiry, in the curiosity of it, in the exploration of it. This podcast will always be here for you to refer to. This page in the workbook will always be here for you to refer to. So you don't need to memorize or soak in all of this information it's probably better to actually write it down or listen to this a few times or refer to it in the book so that you're not having to try and retain all of this information in your mind when your mind has so much other stuff swirling around it all day long anyways, and so much stuff swirling around in it that's being drudged up, that's embedded within our body that we're even unaware of. All of that chatter and energy that's happening in that subconscious or submerged part of the iceberg. The five different types of experiences that activate our nervous system's stress response. Time-related activators. For example, specific dates or anniversaries, holidays, times of day, season, days, or months. Think of any of those times that occur throughout the year where you notice some feelings coming up, some sensations, some thoughts, consistent maybe with a death, maybe with a holiday. A birthday is a big one for a lot of us. We just did some episodes on Mother's Day and Father's Day. So time-related. Environmental activators. Specific places. Types of places. For example, crowded or maybe alone and barren. Geographical locations. Weather or other environmental cues. Imagine an experience happening in childhood Think of what, well, maybe you don't remember, but your body remembers in that experience of childhood, what the environment was around it, the location that you were in, maybe what the weather was. This makes me think actually of, there's a beautiful, if you have not tuned into it already, inner child meditation that Nicole put out was years ago. And the first time I did this meditation and listen to it, it brings you back to the visual of walking through your childhood home or your earliest memories of the actual physical dwelling. And I couldn't really remember my own childhood home in that detail until I immersed in this meditation and I found myself behind closed eyes quite literally feeling how my body felt Walking through the doors of that home, and it even brought up recalled imagery and sensation of that home in such detail that I was so unaware of. And all of that was brought back to me in the present based on that location. Now, if I'm to go back to that geographical location now, there's very much a physical response. My body is communicating something because it remembers, the body always remembers. Another activator, internal activators, specific sensations, emotions, maybe a thought that comes in attached to a specific response, thoughts that are felt within our body. Sensory activators are the fourth category, specifically your smell, sight, touch sounds, feelings. Now, not the internal experience or the physiological sensation of these feelings or senses, but external, the actual smell. Smell Smell's a big one for many people. I know for me, I can't always put my finger on it, but a waft of something will come through or maybe a candle. And instantly that smell has just teleported me back to an experience, that earliest experience that my mind, my conscious awareness isn't aware of, it's not, it doesn't remember, but my body does. It's recalling it. And my mind is then catching up and responding to the embedded physiological experience that's being recalled through this external sense that I'm experiencing, or in this case, that smell that's coming through and activating a memory, the memory actually being recalled here in the present. And the fifth category, relational or interpersonal activators. So for example, perceived anger, disapproval, criticism, judgment or rejection, blame or wrongdoing, dishonesty or betrayal, feeling unseen, unheard or misunderstood, perceived neediness. Feeling directly or indirectly pulled to offer support or to rescue or fix or solve the problem or issue. A perceived pull for validation or approval. Perceived withdrawal or abandonment, loneliness or disconnection. The word perceived here, you'll notice, is intentional. That's consistent. We are perceiving this is happening. This activator is perceived based on our past. It doesn't necessarily mean that's what's actually occurring in reality, but in the reality of our nervous system within, that is what's occurring. Whether it's real or not, the perception of it or the memory or even the thought of it Causes the actual experience within our bodies, perceived procrastination or laziness, incompetence or messiness, difficult or overwhelming interpersonal emotions, and feelings of helplessness or powerlessness over external circumstances. All of these are examples in different categories. We have time related, environmental, internal, sensory and relational or interpersonal activators all experiences that cause an activation of our nervous system stress response
1: within the physical self i'm over here shaking my head very adamantly at all of these relational or interpersonal ones there's just so many in here that again to this day i know for me you know still activate Um, those old habitual patterns, ones that are coming up or, you know, feeling unseen, feeling misunderstood. I talk often of, again, this cycle of emotional addiction. I know exactly where to look to even get confirmed on the internet, usually by strangers who've never met me, right? My deepest fear, right? They are misinterpreting. They, you know, aren't reacting favorably to what it is. And that for me, you know, activates that little girl inside of me who, desperately wanted to be seen to be understood really to be attuned to by by my mom so seeing these moments of perceived or real you know moments of misinterpretation really is activating for me and there's a pull I noticed to, of get that hit subconsciously, to go scroll on that page with that person that I know has a misinterpretation of me that's upsetting. I'm kind of pulled, compelled to before I know it be doom scrolling. I know that's another word that is very much a part of our culture these days. You might notice yourself, right? Doom scrolling particular content um, that might be activating these deeper levels. So for me, it's being unseen, being unheard, being misunderstood. Um, It's also perceived messiness. This is a really common one. And for me, it leads back to, right, if someone's living in the home or cohabitating, this came up a lot. I talk about in my early relationship with Lolly in particular, who has a different way of living than me. And when things were not in the order that I kind of had a familiar liking to, um, a sense of control around, I would perceive her messiness, for lack of a better word, as her not considering me, and how I need to or want to, right, engage with this space. And for me, it kind of activated me. I would become mean. I would become withdrawn, thinking again that she is not considering how I might be experiencing this environment. Again, this is really going back to my early childhood where emotionally I felt largely unconsidered. So again, other ones might be resonating with each of you listening, but I wanted to just give those two examples. Of, again, current day moments where I feel that rumbling of activation around those particular, for me, it's really interpersonal or relational cues. Again, activating maybe not what's actually happening but what once did. And then activating again, that habitual way that I tried to cope, usually, which isn't getting my need met, isn't allowing me to be seen, attuned to, understood, right? Isn't allowing me to have my felt sense of consideration by another. I'm usually just continuing that cycle of affirming those unmet needs as opposed to shifting and changing.
0: I think a largely universal example for at least the relational or interpersonal activators, which, as you just heard, has the largest list of bullet points and examples under it, is that experience when someone says they need to talk to you. Maybe it's a partner or a teacher or a boss or a coworker that says, you know, come into my office or, hey, we need to have a conversation. For most, I know for me, even just saying that, my stomach immediately is like, oh my gosh, what did you do? And (laughs) even in this moment now, I'm like, well, Jenny, you just said that. You're talking on a (laughs) a podcast. Nothing happened, though the physical response in my body, it's still there. That's how embedded it is, which I'm so glad you gave the example earlier of the, you know, how you said, I want to go away on an island (laughs) because those thoughts are there. And yes, Nicole vocalized that outward. And it's so powerful to acknowledge that because the goal isn't like to dissipate that thought or get it away. Maybe eventually over time, it'll become so quiet and so silenced and muted because your focus is elsewhere that it does seem to go away though. It's usually always floating there. I can't tell you how many, so this is still my immediate response. It's not acted upon now <laughs> though. Anytime there's an upset or a, any sort of perceived activation mentally, I'm on a plane, I'm out. And I li- I literally think of it that way. I start mentally scanning my calendar and I'm like, okay, when can I go away? Oh, we have a free weekend coming up. Well, I won't be here. I'll be gone because I still go to that. Oh, I'm gonna leave. That's just my mind's habitual way of coping. Quite literally for me as a child, it was fleeing in those emotional overwhelm or stress responses and even moments of unsafety, perceived or not, I was to go. You know, I if I was out, I was much better off than I was in that experience. So it is another space too to have some love and some compassion for yourself and why you do have the thoughts that you Do, why you do respond in the ways that you do. They are all mechanisms that came from somewhere, from a very real reality. And while that reality was real and extremely valid, we largely are the ones bringing that past reality here to the present. So this identification of exploring our own activators in those different categories, maybe it's an environment or a location, or maybe it's a person or an experience or certain words that someone says to me that maybe I don't have a memory of why that was so activating because it's connected to something in my childhood, but my body does. My body always remembers. And if I choose to now become my own science experiment and observe what's happening in my body, I'll start to tune into those cues and start to notice when something gets a little jazzed up, something starts brewing, something is physically responding in my body. We don't need to go and connect it all the way back to the root and have that clarity. That clarity May never come, and that's not necessary. Though for a lot of us, it will start to surface the more we just immerse in the present observation of what's so. The only thing we can actually work with right now is the actual experience in the now, the actual reactivation or the actual response that we're having to these internal activators. Which brings us to the next page in the workbook, which is page 160, a continuation of identifying these activators, though broken down into a chart for you to help understand and really have a formula to apply this to your own observation throughout the rest of this day and your coming days and weeks.
1: So to really simplify, what we want to look for, again, is is really three-part Um, The first part isn't in this chart, though, really tuning into the body. Are you noticing your muscles begin to tense? Are you noticing, right, your posture beginning to hunch? Are you noticing your heart rate beginning to escalate, your body beginning to sweat? What are you noticing happening in, in your body? Again, those are usually markers that your nervous system outside of your awareness has been activated. And then you could begin to pay attention. Well, what is it that actually is happening. And the example we give in the chart is my coworker criticized my work. I mean, you could insert anyone here. My partner, you know, I felt criticized by someone, right? So that is the event. Then we want to begin to pay attention to what did I do, right? What is the habit that then happened next, right? I got criticized. My, I'm having all these physiological shifts, And then what happens? Of course, then we welcome and make space for different habitual ways that we've learned to cope with that particular experience. So for those of you listening who might have learned a fight-based response, right, in reaction to this coworker, whoever it is that you're perceiving criticism from, the immediate thing you might notice yourself doing, and you might not even notice it in real time. Maybe it's after the fact where you're feeling badly. You might say something sarcastic. You might scream. You might yell, right, right back at that person, Others listening, if your habitual response, the way you've learned to create safety for yourself might be shutting down. So instead of maybe screaming or yelling or being sarcastic or passive aggressive, maybe you check out, right? You, you begin to think of something else entirely. You go far away on your spaceship. You begin to feel numb overall as if you're not there in that hurtful or painful experience itself. And of course, another common example, if you have learned to flee or to avoid, right, the threat entirely, maybe you fawn or people please. So you feel or you get a sense that criticism is coming and you might profusely apologize, right? Attempt to explain away the criticism itself, defending yourself, right? Trying to remove the threat by making the criticism not applicable to you at all or by Apologizing, right? Giving that person who's criticizing you the affirmation that they're right, that their criticism is appropriate. So, giving those examples, then really welcoming all of you listening. To you know, create space. You might do something habitually different. There might be different moments of activation. Again, I gave many examples in the relational category. Some listeners might notice a lot more in terms of time or geographic location or maybe those internal sensations or maybe it's smells like Jenna mentioned. Or I know music is another common one. I mean, music is one of those things for me. I can put on music and it literally transports me not only sometimes into different timeframes in my life. I have like my 20-year-old soundtrack that might as well put me back in New York City in my 20s with all of those emotions. And for others, it's particular songs, right, that are playing. So welcoming all of us, to simplify what I'm sharing here, is to allow yourself, like you're sharing beautifully, Jenna, the possibility of exploring what it is for you. It might not be the exact examples we're giving. There might be even a different category of something that activates you and a different habitual way you deal with it. But the practice here, right, is simply observing, creating space. And like I mentioned, it might not happen, probably won't in real time. A lot of times it's after we've already habitually reacted. We said that sarcastic thing. It's after I've, I'm back from my spaceship and the event's over already, right? It's after now I've apologized and I'm leaving the situation wondering why I apologized because I didn't feel wrong. And then we can kind of backtrack that observation or that exploration. Okay, well, what is it that happened? What was my body possibly feeling? And then again, what did I habitually do to try to return myself to that safety?
0: It's completely okay that it's not happening in that moment that actually provides such grace and really such gratitude I think to have for yourself that outside of that moment you're willing to do this is the work this right here is the deep work it's being willing to be in that inquiry and that reflection of what we can't unhappen. It has already happened it's already occurred we can't go back into the past and rearrange that. So any moment outside of accepting reality as it is, is really us doing ourselves a disservice. It's very disempowering because we can't move forward. We can't do anything with that except stay in a shame cycle, stay in an emotional addiction cycle. And this brings us right back to actually highlighting again on page 158 if you do have the workbook, there's that little graph up top that shows the loops of the you know the threat the stress response that's activated, the emotional reactivity that comes from that perceived threat, which then goes into our habitual responses. Maybe my habitual response is to yell. Maybe it's to shut down. Whatever that is, that's the thing that we are observing here. Many of us observing in reflection. We are looking back at what already happens. And this is why I say it's such an opportunity for grace and gratitude with yourself because the next step of that little graph is to then, based on our habitual response, to go back into that shame cycle, to berate ourselves, to betray our authentic self by judging ourselves, critiquing ourselves, shaming ourselves for having the habitual response that we did. So, the reality is that we do have habitual responses. That's actually a great thing to become aware of because we can predict it. When we can become aware of how we're already reacting and create the space, maybe right now in this moment is the first time you're creating the space to say, okay, that did happen. That is how I respond. Okay, I can become accountable and take responsibility For how I responded. And it's okay that that happened how it happened because now it's happened. Now, me saying it's okay does not justify a behavior, a behavior that's harmed yourself or another. It's not justifying and saying, oh, that behavior is okay. Harming self or another is okay. No, it's okay in the sense of it's already absolute, it's already occurred. So use this as an opportunity, maybe for the first time, to intercept that last part of this cycle. Yes, it's already occurred, but even though it's already occurred, what you have the opportunity to prevent or reroute, is a better way to say it, is that shame cycle. And you do that simply through observing. And maybe having some loving compassion for yourself and saying, you know what, it's not my best self to to hurt someone else or to shut someone down or to be upset in a relationship and hop on a plane and abandon this person. It's interesting that my response, well, it's not really interesting, it's so textbook that my response in these activating moments is to mentally scan my calendar and mentally hop on a plane and get out. It's to abandon the other person. Why is it to abandon the other person? Well, for me, I was abandoned as a child. My immediate caretaker, my father, and the person who is supposed to be that regulating, attuning force that keeps me safe, quite literally looked at me one day and then disappeared literally never to return. There is an abandonment there. So until I become aware of that, and it didn't feel good at first to recognize in myself, what did I then learn to do? I didn't learn not to abandon. I learned to do the same exact thing. I don't want to be abandoned by other people, but what was the actual behavior that I witnessed and learned? And I learned it not by being taught it, I learned it from observing my parents. I learned it by observing my father. When things are activating, when things are hard, when things are in emotional turmoil or chaos or dysfunction, you abandon, you leave. That didn't occur as wrong to me. It wasn't moral at all. And for children, It's not. Children are watching what you do without a morality. They're not sitting there and thinking like, oh, that was a good choice. That was a responsible choice my dad made or that was really irresponsible. No, they're just seeing it as, oh, this experience happened, intense overwhelm. Here's what my safe, my quote unquote safe adult did because I'm going to believe as a child that every adult around me is safe. I don't know to think anything different because I'm dependent on them for survival. And if I'm dependent on this caretaker for survival, then even if it's so unsafe and in dysfunction, it's signaling safety to me because safety is just occurring as existence. It's the survival of existing, not survival of well-being or
1: regulation or attunement. I really appreciate you giving that lived you know example jenna and my hope for this in, in the entire discussion and this entire concept of emotional addiction is possibly like you're beautifully offering the advice to do so which is to grant ourselves all of you listening that grace and that compassion because this is where i i often say right we can have all of these great, you know, wants and desires and new tools, right? And, and things and suggestions that we want to do to, you know, not recreate those childhood environments. So these emotional addictions are embedded inside of us. So this is where many of us, we can't bridge that gap between insight into action. We quite literally have to begin in those moments to embody new choices, to begin to see all these habitual ways as at one time, our best attempt at creating safety and security from that state of dependency. And until we do that, we're going to continue to repeat these cycles. And that I think for many of us, and I know for the clients that I used to work with when I had a private practice, was such a frustrating abyss to be in, right? We become so self-aware, right? We have these tools, we have all this kind of knowing better, right? That's for lack of a better word, yet we can't do better. We can't do differently, I should say. We can't create the change or make those new choices because we don't yet understand how embedded and how we desire these familiar patterns and how unbeknownst to us, the large majority of us are recreating through our body's reactions, those early childhood experiences, even the most painful ones, even the ones that so many of us have affirmed that we will not continue, that we will not continue in our own lives, and we will definitely not pass on to the children that some of us may be having, yet we continue to find ourselves doing and feeling the same way. Again, some of us locked in these emotional addiction cycles. For me, it was that emotional addiction cycle of stress and worry. I mean, in my 20s, upwards of panic for three decades almost of my life, and it would have continued Until, of course, I came across this new awareness, this new information, and began to create that daily commitment to bridge that gap, to begin to utilize and understand why I couldn't change, why I'm stuck, why so many of you are stuck, and then to actually create the space to embody new choices, which had to, at this point, involve my body. I had to start shifting the messages that my body was sending my mind if I was ever going to have a chance to feel that peace, that freedom, and that connection, really, that i desperately wanted and needed and desired, yet I continue to recreate the complete opposite. So I'm hoping, of course, that this concept in and of itself for many of you might be what offers that that relief, maybe that possibility of compassion, because I know so many of us are shameful. We're judging ourselves based on these cycles that are embedded in our physiology. We're neurobiologically driven to repeat them, and we don't have that space for choice left. Though, of course for many of you, that might not be enough. You're still in action recreating these cycles. So again, the process of change, I know many of us kind of want to go to the part of, well, I want it to be different. We have to see what's present. What is it that we're recreating? What is happening in our body, right? What is that? activator that's causing that shift in my body and how am i continuing to keep myself locked in this cycle we have to become present to what's happening hab- happening for us habitually before we can have that space to create those new choices so as always we'd love to hear from you if you're watching us on our youtube channel as we welcome you to do so if you haven't yet Um, All of these episodes are transcribed, and there's also a wonderful comment section filled with community members who are always um, responding to these episodes, and we'd love to hear from you. Have you ever heard of emotional addiction and what it is that you're witnessing? What are you noticing? What emotional addiction cycles are coming up or present for you in your life? As always, the community, these conversations are so much a part of what this podcast in and of itself is. And we are so grateful for all of you who are listening, who are engaging, and of course, who are sharing any of these episodes that are of interest. And as always, we're looking forward to continuing this conversation with you on next episode.